Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Karen Levy, author of the book Data Driven, Truckers, Technology, and the New Workplace Surveillance. Karen, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. And we're happy to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. I am a faculty member in the Department of Information Science at Cornell University. I am a lawyer and a sociologist by training, and my research focuses on legal, ethical, and social dimensions of new technologies. What led you to write a book about the impact of new technologies on the trucking industry, which I thought was especially fascinating considering how trucking is, in many respects, one of the oldest professions, and you, you, and it's one that you don't necessarily think of at first blush as being, you know, something we associate with, you know, these new technologies. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, right? People have been driving trucks for ages. You know, sometimes when we think about new technology adopters, a truck driver might not be the first person that pops into our minds. But truckers are actually like pretty savvy technology users. The truck is, you know, obviously a big piece of technology in its own right. And it's one that truck drivers obviously have a lot of expertise about. Truckers, because they're away from home a lot, were actually pretty early adopters of some of the kind of net, like social network technologies and other technologies that allow them to stay in touch with people from afar. But the reason I got into trucking as a research area was actually just because, you know, I mentioned my background is in law and in sociology, and I've been interested for a really long time in rules, right, in how rules function in the world, what it means to enforce rules using technology, right? Sometimes we have a rule that, you know, we've kind of maybe enforced in an imperfect way or in sort of a discretionary way, but it's pretty common, and you see it in all kinds of different domains of life, to try to switch to enforcing rules using technology, right? Like to be more consistent or to be more perfect in some sense. Um, So I, you know, I kind of was interested in that dynamic. I wanted to see, you know, what's different on the ground for people in interfacing with these systems of rules or systems of law when they're enforced technologically. And I was just kind of like looking for an area where that was happening. And this was in 2011 when I was working on my dissertation. And just on the radio, totally by chance, I heard this story about truckers and how truckers were upset because um, the federal government was considering mandating that they use digital technologies to keep track of their time. So truckers have for almost almost 100 years now been subject to timekeeping regulations under the Federal Department of Transportation, and that caps the number of hours that they can drive every day and every week, um, obviously like for safety reasons, right, to keep them from getting too fatigued. So those rules have been in place for a long time. But what was new is that the government was saying like, well, we think that for reasons that I can get into if we're interested, we think that we should start enforcing those rules digitally by tracking this stuff electronically instead of relying on truckers to just kind of report their hours. So I thought like, okay, well, that's kind of what I'm looking for, maybe like, let me see, let me see if this is the site. Um, So that day, I didn't know any truckers. I didn't, I have no truckers in my family. It wasn't an area I really knew at all. Um, But that day that I heard that story, I went to a truck stop just to kind of see what it was like to hang out there and to see what it was like to talk to drivers. And it was great. Like, I had a wonderful time talking to truckers. They were super generous with their time and expertise. They had such interesting stories about the work that they do, um, you know, the constraints that they're under. And so I was just hooked, like, immediately, right? I never kind of 
life comes at you fast, right? Like I never kind of dreamed that I would spend a decade of my life thinking about truckers, but that's what happened. That's what happened. It, it, it's, it's such a fascinating book because you talk about this issue from a uh, you know a legal regulatory perspective, but you also integrate into it a discussion of the the history of trucking in America and and, and the culture of trucking. And as you demonstrate, it, it's it's so uh, integral to this whole question of electronic surveillance. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit more about about the the culture of trucking and, and how it informs how truckers approach some of these issues that you're describing involving uh, monitoring and, uh, and and the regulations that they face in their profession? Yeah, absolutely. So trucking, for about the last maybe 40 or 50 years, um, trucking has kind of had a negative connotation. Like if you ask people what they think about truckers, if they think about them at all, which maybe they don't, but if they think about them at all, they tend to have kind of negative stereotypes in mind, right? People sometimes think of truckers as like, asphalt cowboys is like a phrase that sometimes gets tossed around, right? That they have sort of some maybe contempt for law enforcement or um, for kind of strictures of authority more generally. The culture is like very highly associated with machismo or with, um, you know, kind of independence. And some of that is, you know, it is kind of born out in trucker culture. So if you watch like tr classic trucker movies from the 1970s, they all kind of have like a leading man who's really virile and you know, outsmarts the smoky or something, right? Like that's a really common trope, but it's, it's a common trope because like it does reflect some of the ideology of, of trucking, which is pretty libertarian. Um, it's very male. So trucking is about 90, I think it's about 95% male by the numbers and it's very macho, right? So there's a big association with kind of stamina um, and the ability to do what is just a really, really difficult and dangerous job. And one of the things I talk about in the book is how this culture, right, this culture doesn't just arise on its own. It arises in large part because of kind of the economic and political nature of the industry. So since 1980, trucking has been deregulated. Um, and what that means is that before that time, the federal government set rates in trucking and placed different barriers to entry on the industry. So it said only certain companies could drive, um, could operate trucks, and then they all had to charge the same rates. That all went away in the 1980s, and it became super, super competitive. And what that meant for drivers was that their pay decreased like substantially. Basically, the market like competed away their pay is the way some folks have talked about it. So truckers used to make about $110,000 in contemporary dollars back in 1980. Now they make about $47,000. So they're, and those, their wages have just stagnated um, over the last several years. And so the reason I raise this here is that, you know, your question was about culture and a lot of the kind of cultural gloss on trucking is really a response to kind of the economic straits that truckers find themselves in, right? They kind of have to compensate a little bit um, for, you know, the, the situation in which they find themselves in terms of the number of hours that they drive, the amount of danger inherent in the work they do. Truckers have, I think it's the sixth highest rate of occupational fatalities in the United States. They have all kinds of health problems from, you know, being on the road all the time. They have a hard time maintaining, you know, kind of stable family structures sometimes because they're away from home a lot. So it's a really, really hard, dirty job. But it's also a job that like engenders a lot of pride. So if you talk to truckers about why they got into what why they get into the profession, a lot of them will tell you it's because I didn't want someone looking over my shoulder all the time. Right. Or I really wanted the freedom of the open road like that carries a lot of weight for people and kind of helps to support the identity that they form as truckers. 
Now, you make it clear in your book that what you're ta- what you're focused on is long haul trucking, which is regulated very differently than than, than the short haul trucking that the sort of the you know in city or in community trucking that that we you know uh, sometimes encounter on the roads ourselves. But you, what you're talking about is a form of trucking that, as you mentioned, is regulated, and it has long been regulated. And that's where you get into what has changed with electronic surveillance. You talk about the history of regulation prior to the introduction of electronic surveillance with these logs. And I thought it was really fascinating how you talk about the culture and the compromises that evolved. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon that, because it really helps understand the perspective from which long-haul truckers approach this issue of electronic surveillance. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I agree. So um, the rise of electronic surveillance in trucking is a response to um, what is seen as imperfect enforcement of these timekeeping regulations. So truckers have, they have a cap every day and every week on how much they can drive. People don't really need to know the specifics of that, but there's there's a certain, certain number of hours a day they can drive and a certain number of hours per week they can drive. And the specifics have changed a little bit over the decades, but they're pretty consistent. Um, and the part of the problem has been that because so truckers are almost almost all of them in long haul are paid by the mile. So they're paid a certain number of cents per mile that they drive. And what that means is that they're not paid at all for the time that they're not driving. Right. They're not paid at all for the time that they're stuck in traffic or stuck in a snowstorm or loading or unloading you know, from the back of their truck or um, doing safety inspections or sleeping or any of the other things that are really necessary to the work but they're just not compensated, right? And so as a result, it's not surprising, right, that truckers, they have a saying, right? The saying is, if the wheel ain't turning, you ain't earning. So you're only paid for the time you're driving, you're gonna wanna drive as much as you can. Now that obviously is intention with these timekeeping regulations that say you can only drive so many hours per day because there are just a lot of delays, right, in the life of being a trucker. There's waiting for many hours maybe to be loaded or unloaded, that happens really routinely. Um, you know, there are things that anybody who's driven on the highway knows that it doesn't always go quite according to plan. So there's been a need really for some some flexibility in how truckers follow these rules. Um, and up until recently, the way they were, were charged with following the rules or recording their, their time was on just paper and pencil logbooks, right? So you would buy a sh- like a, um, a pad of paper and pencil, uh, a pad of paper logbooks at a truck stop for a couple of bucks. And you would use a pencil to kind of fill out how many hours you worked that day. Those documents weren't connected with the way you were paid at all. So it was very, very common for truckers to kind of chisel the logs a little bit or tweak them, right? Like make it look like you drove legal, even though you can't really often do your job driving legal, right? The, the kind of pace of business that's expected of truckers and the pace structure in trucking necessitated people breaking those rules, you know, all the time, really pretty frequently. And so the response to that from the federal government, it hasn't been to kind of change the way truckers are paid or to change kind of the systems that cause these delays for truckers. Instead, the response has been like, well, we should make it harder for truckers to kind of fudge these logs, right? We should enforce these rules digitally. And so um, for about 25 years, there was discussion in Washington about this, what's now called the electronic logging device or ELD. Um, and that was the, the idea behind the ELD is that, well, like, let's hardwire into the truck some rec- some device that records how long truckers have been driving and where they are. And so ELDs have been mandatory in the industry for about five years now. Um, and a lot of my book is kind of focused on the development of the ELD and what the ELD does to the work of trucking and to the life of trucking, right? How is it that it changes the way truckers are managed? How does it change the way they kind of interact with the law? 
Um, and you know, based on what we what we discussed about truckers, you can imagine like how popular these were when they rolled out, right? Like this is an industry where people are really attached to their autonomy, to their independence, to their ability to make decisions. You know, quite literally, not to have someone looking over their shoulder. And what the ELD kind of facilitates is this, in many in many ways, kind of fairly intimate record keeping about truckers and where they are and what they're doing and their bodies. Um, and so it's been a really controversial kind of introduction into the industry that sort of is an affront in many ways to kind of the culture that the occupation has built up over time. Well, one of the things I thought was most fascinating about your discussion of the introduction is how it impacts all the major actors in it. And, and here, because I obviously the truckers and that's something we'll get into a bit more in just a moment but i i, I don't i didn't really think when i when i started reading your book that you're going to be discussing as well the people who are tasked with enforcing these measures which are your state troopers your 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 highway police the the people who are, are the ones who are, are in stations basically checking these logs and how you describe that they too had a, a way of doing things that was fairly set and it was kind of a you know a, a give and take process that that had evolved and all of a sudden you describe how they, because of the ELDs, are in a very different way, uh, thrust in a, di- in a slightly different environment of enforcement that can be in some ways uh, a little uh, humiliating and a little off-putting as well. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that too. It, I definitely, you know, when people talk about the state and surveillance, people tend to think like, well, the state is empowered by surveillance, right? If the federal government is requiring this digital monitoring, you know, for regulatory purposes, like that is almost definitionally about kind of giving the state more oversight into um, what people are doing, right? We tend to think of that as, as being kind of like a power augmenting move. But what actually happened, right? And and I some of my field work, I ended up spending some time with state troopers, you know, um, and commercial vehicle inspectors who are law enforcement officers who's, you know, specialize in doing inspections of trucks as they go down the road at a way station or if they pull over a truck. Um, and they are responsible for, as you mentioned, right, like keeping keeping tabs on whether truckers have broken these hours of service regulations, right? So they, you know, back in the old days with paper logbooks, they would take the paper logbook from the trucker and they would ask a bunch of questions to kind of try to test the veracity of the log, right? We knew that maybe truckers weren't being as honest as they could be on these logs because they had all these incentives to, to not be. Um, and so what they would do is they would kind of try to check and see, you know, does it make sense that the trucker said that they left Albuquerque at such and such time and now they're in Waco? Like, does that comport with what I know about mileage, right? Like, they would ask all these questions. They had their own software they would use to kind of check the logs. Um, You know, I spent a couple of days with commercial vehicle inspectors watching them do this work, and they all had, like, these practices that they built up over time for kind of how they did this work. And they, as you mentioned, were not that excited either when, excuse me, electronic logging rolled out and become man- became mandatory. Um, there was a bunch of like social media activity from different highway departments where they would kind of like make jokes about how they also hated electronic logging just as much as the truckers. And part of the reason for that was that, you know, they didn't necessarily know how to use this new technology either. This was a, an affront or a challenge to their ways of doing their work kind of in the same way it was for truckers. And part of that was that, um, you know, for truckers, or excuse me, for inspectors to inspect electronic logs at this time required them to actually get up into the truck with the truck driver because they were like hardwired, like they, they would be on the dashboard. And so what happened is that you would see commercial vehicle inspectors like really struggle actually in their interactions with these digital devices. Like they didn't know how to use them. 
And they were doing this now in full view of a truck driver who also like hated this thing. So it didn't do much to kind of augment, um, you know, the, the kind of authority of these law enforcement officers to be like, not really knowing what they were doing and to be doing it in the, in the cab with the trucker, right. Where they were also worried about things like, you know, does the trucker have a weapon or is there a dog or, you know, like sometimes truck cabs are like pretty small spaces and the trucker has all kinds of stuff there. Right. So it just changed the interaction dynamic, like really markedly. Um, And in some ways sort of, and this was surprising to me, it actually created this kind of funny alliance between the trucker and the inspector, because they would both kind of say like, well, I, I hate this thing, right? Like we've all been thwarted by technology on occasion, right? We all are like, I don't know why it says that. Like, why does my, you know, why does my computer think it's 3 a.m., right? Like things, these things happen. And so both the trucker and the law enforcement officer could kind of like blame the technology for why the interaction wasn't going well. Um, and, it, you know, it caused this sort of weird temporary alignment between the two of them. Now, this, this field work that I did about this was a few years ago. Now the interfaces are standardized. Now law enforcement officers have much more practice because these are mandatory um, kind of interfacing with these. So I don't think this happens anymore. Like I think they've kind of changed their practices around the technology, but it was this really interesting kind of moment to uncover that transition in a technology, as you mentioned, changes the inter- changes the kind of the work practices and the interactions of a lot of different people, right? Not Maybe not just the, the party that we most think of. It's also the the notion of space that you described, which was when the trucker is uh, presenting his logbooks, he usually goes into whatever you know shack or office that the state trooper happens to be based uh, in at the station and has to present it. Whereas it, when we're doing the log, when you're doing the, the ELDs, they have to be in the trucker's space. And as you're describing with, with you know the concerns they have, but more importantly, it's just you know it's it's the, it's the trucker's environment, not necessarily the troopers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like they're suddenly kind of intruders and they're not on their home turf. So it reduces kind of um, some of the leverage that they used to have when they would take your logbook and they'd take it back to, as you said, to the scale house or to their own vehicle, um, you know, where they were more comfortable, where they had more authority over what they were doing. So it was a real change in how the work looked for them, too. You also go into the ways in which truckers more actively resisted the uh, introduction of this new technology. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain a bit uh, the, the ways in which that they sought to avoid, because it sounds like when you see, when you use the word mandatory, that you, you cannot avoid this. And yet, as you explained, there's actually a, a, a fairly, you know, uh, uh, you know, considerable range of, of options they could uh, uh, undertake in terms of trying to get around having to uh, submit, shall we say, to electronic monitoring. Yeah, it's a really good point, right? So a lot of the kind of motivation or rationale for the adoption of digital monitoring was this idea that it would be like more tamper-proof, right? Or it would give us a more accurate sense for how much truckers were driving because it would be harder to falsify, right? Than, than the paper logs. Paper logs were really easy to falsify. It took about five minutes to figure out how to do it. And there was like no real check on that, right? So a lot of the thinking behind the electronic log is like, well, let's make that harder for people to do. And I think it did make it harder for people to do, but it certainly didn't make it impossible for people to do. And so one in one chapter of the book, I go into some depth about, okay, so what is it that truckers did you know, to kind of get around the constraints of the monitoring, because as I mentioned, right, like the rollout of the monitoring did not change their core incentives, right? It didn't change the fact that they were paid by the mile. It didn't change the fact that, um, you know, they had to move stuff at the pace of business, right? And and we expect that, right, as customers and their, their employers would expect that. So they still had to kind of find ways to get the work done. And, you know, I mentioned how little pay they have for the work 
that they do. So they're incentivized to obviously keep working. So what kinds of things did they do? Like they did this huge range of things that I thought this was one of my favorite chapters to write because just the ingenuity that people uh, drew (laughs) on and like figuring out how to push back against these things was really interesting. I mean, some of the most direct things people would do were just like smash the thing with a hammer, right? Like there were several reports of people doing stuff like that, which like sends a message, right? Like that's a pretty direct way of saying like, I don't like this thing. Um, obviously that's not super sustainable over the long term, but there were lots of reports of that. Like that that gets your message across. But then there were all kinds and, of and, and real quick, and, yeah, sorry, and actually and real quickly to, to, to point out that they pay for these. It's, these are being supplied to them by the by the federal government or being paid for by by their employer. That, so when they're smashing these things, it's it's it's, a, it's even more uh, uh, impressive of the statement because they're effectively you know assuming the costs of of, of replacing it. Yeah, and I mean in many cases, right? Or if their employers did pay for them, which which did sometimes happen, if there are employee drivers who are working for a company that provides the truck and the equipment they probably weren't keeping that job for too much longer. So you know, it involves some personal costs, but for some folks like that was, you know, that that was part of their calculus, right? They're like sending this message. Um, So that's like one really pretty direct way people can go about it. But then there were lots of other, other kind of more subtle, I suppose everything's more subtle than hitting something with a hammer, but (laughs) folks did, Um, you know, one of them, there's obviously won't go through all of them right now, but like one of the things that I thought was really interesting that somebody did, there's this one really great um, YouTube video that I found several years ago of a trucker talking about how to quote hack his electronic logging device. And when he's, and I watched it of course, cause I was like, yeah, how do you hack it? Right? Like what is, what are the ways to kind of like alter the data or, you know, what we normally think of as hacking, right? Like change the data. And cause there were some reports of people trying to actually like get the electronic logging device to show false data, which is pretty hard to do, but I was, I was curious. Anyway, what this trucker does when he says he's hacking is he just so the the electronic logging device he had was it's made by Qualcomm, which is a big company that makes these things. Um, and he's show it runs on like a Windows backend, a Windows operating system. And he's showing how actually there's like a certain series of keystrokes you can press. I forget what they were, but like a certain series of keystrokes or like screen presses that will bring up the games menu of like the, from the Windows start menu. And so he's showing how you can play solitaire on the electronic logging device. Now, I thought this was so interesting because if you listen to kind of the voiceover with this with this video where he's showing how you do this, like he is so, there's a lot of profanity in it. He's like really derisive in his tone, right? Like he is, this is definitely an act of resistance for him because he's like, you're going to put this thing in my cab and you're not even going to let me play games. Like, let me show you how I can use it to play solitaire. Like, obviously that's not making him any money. That is not changing the number of hours he's able to record, right? We might question whether that even counts as resistance because it's not like making a structural change. It's not like a systematic or a systemic um, kind of reallocation of power or like it's not, it's not making him any more money, but it's clearly resistance if you listen to kind of the way he talks about it because it's helping him sort of re-cement his identity, right? As somebody who's autonomous, as somebody who has some power over the system that he's not supposed to have, according to the folks who put it there. So that one I found really interesting. There's just a whole bunch of them, right? Like another really common thing folks would do um, is something called ghost logs. So what they would do, and this is really pretty obvious if you think about it for a little bit, you know, you have like a, a username and password that you would enter into this device to say like, you know, I, Karen, I'm driving these 11 hours from A to B. So like, okay, if you get to the end of 11 hours, which is the daily limit, like you just log in as somebody else, right? You log in as, you know, a ghost, right? As some other person. And there were lots of trucking companies that like 
knew this, right, and kind of would maybe turn the turn turn a blind eye to this practice, right, from drivers because they wanted it kind of both ways, right? Like they maybe wanted some of the capabilities of the system in as much as it helped them manage their drivers or get oversight into what their drivers are doing, but they also like need the stuff to move, right? They need to meet their shipping deadlines. Um, so there was just a bunch of really interesting stuff that that drivers would do, and some of it was individual and some of it was collective, some of it was overt, some of it was covert. It was just a really interesting range of practices, I think. Now, this is, of course, about more than just simply electronically monitoring truckers. As, as you explain, this actually gets to this far larger transformation that's taking place. And it's not even just confined to the trucking industry. We're really talking about how it's a microcosm in so many ways of what's happening with us as a society, about the growing introduction of electronic monitoring, electronic surveillance to so many aspects of our, our, our work in our, in our lives. And you use this to talk about what the future holds for trucking, because you we 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 we've been talking a lot about uh, you know autonomous driving. Uh, we've been talking about it for a long period of time. There are cars testing it today, and you talk about what the future holds for trucking, given the fact that you, you see very little, as you demonstrate, as you describe, very little interest in changing and improving the working conditions of truckers. It's more about monitoring to make sure that they're doing it according to these sometimes contradictory regulations. And, and you talk about what technology, the, the future of technology for, for truckers. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon how electronic surveillance points to what the future might hold for them. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, maybe listeners have thought about or have heard these kind of media reports over the last three or four years, maybe about autonomous trucking or more generally just like this robots are taking our jobs kind of trope, right, that comes up sometimes in the media where people are concerned and not maybe not illegitimately about what it will mean for automation or robotics or AI to kind of enter some of these low wage workplaces and potentially replace like large swaths of the labor force because they're able to do it better, right? Or, and more cheaply. Um, and this is something that I have to say, like when I first started writing about truckers, this was not really part of the story at all. Like when I, when I wrote my dissertation about truckers, um, like nobody was really talking about autonomous trucks, but in the last few years, of course, the technology behind autonomous vehicles has really just like taken great leaps forward. There's a lot more, venture capital funding and like other interest in um, autonomous truck startups, things like that. And so one of the questions I kind of set out to answer in the latter part of the book, as you mentioned, is like, well, what's the future look like for these folks, right? Like, you know, I have to admit to you, at first, I was like, well, maybe this, maybe this whole thing is kind of like a moot point, because there won't be truckers anymore. So I spent all this time writing about trucker surveillance. And like, what if there's just like, will anyone care? <laughs> like, will anyone need this book? Because now there's no truckers anymore. But obviously, that, that's not actually what we what we see happening. Um, for a bunch of reasons that I get into in the book, there's though there is a lot of excitement about autonomous vehicle technology and autonomous trucks, especially right because for a few reasons, right? Like in part because there's obviously money to be made in that industry, um, and it also because you know actually the types of driving that trucks do over the highway is some of the driving that's easier for autonomous vehicles to do. So like autonomous vehicles have. A harder time on local roads or places where there's a lot of pedestrian things like that. But most of trucking, right, takes place on on big highways. So like a good portion of the trucking, or excuse me, of the miles that are run are actually things that are pot potentially more easily amenable to autonomous technology. So anyway, you know, I like there was a lot more interest in some of these questions about like, well, what will happen to these drivers? 
and what I end up finding, I like did some some research about this topic, and you know, we're not actually really close to technologically a context in which autonomous trucks can do the work by themselves. Um, and there are a bunch of some. There's some technical reasons for this. Um, you know, the technology is just not there yet. We're still kind of at a point where humans really need to be pretty intimately involved in the driving task. Um, and like some people think that that we will just sort of never get past that in autonomous vehicle technology, right? That there will always be the need for this kind of handoff, as it's sometimes called, um, between the human and the robot. And so what we actually end up seeing in, you know, I think the near future of trucking is not necessarily this replacement or this displacement of a human worker, but instead kind of an integration of human labor and machine labor. So I think we can expect to see some changes over time as, as autonomous vehicle technology becomes more advanced and you know more integrated into the industry, but it was not gonna be like all of a sudden there's no more human drivers, right? What's interesting is that kind of, if we think about this integration, right? If we think about what happens as humans and machines are working together in these different ways, what that actually ends up looking like is more surveillance, right? So it's not a replacement. It's not that surveillance is kind of, um, it's substituted away by automation. It's that surveillance and automation are sort of complements to each other, right? They're sort of the same thing. So just to give a couple examples of what I mean by this, if you look at the way AI is being used in trucking now, that looks like um, like a camera that has that uses AI to track uh, a driver's eyelid movements, right? It's to see if the driver is too fatigued, right? This is the kind of thing that's increasingly being built into these fleet management systems that ELDs are a part of, right? So ELDs kind of become the scaffolding on which we build a whole lot of kind of workplace technology or managerial technology that keeps track of things that truckers are doing, not for the government, but for their employers, right? So this can include things like, um, you know, a lot of biometrics data, um, these camera systems that face the driver, you know, are trained on the driver's face, um, some wearable devices that will detect a driver's heart rate or brain waves, things like that. Like this is actually the way we're feeling AI, truckers are feeling AI in the industry now, right? Is through these kinds of technologies, which are not about displacement, right? Those are about like kind of intrusion, right? Like they're kind of becoming part of the work of trucking is to be doing the work of trucking alongside these, you know, kind of intimate incursions into truckers' bodies. All of which, you know, encounter the same sort of conflict with trucker culture that you described you're already seeing with the ELDs. Oh, yeah. 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 In spades, right? Like if ELDs seem like <laughs> a problem, then, you know, a, a hat that you wear that flashes a light in your eyes when you get tired, right? Or like, you know, a seat that vibrates to wake you back up when you're starting to get tired. Like, they're, you know, these are technologies that I write about in the book, like, yes, of course, those are the types of things that very few of us would happily stomach in our work, right? And so it's not any surprise that truckers are also resistant to those kinds of incursions. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of what I end up writing about in the book, you know, I'm obviously the book is about trucking, but I'm more broadly kind of interested in, you know, what does this tell us about sort of technology policy or technology ethics? How should we think about using technology in making rules or enforcing rules or in promulgating policy that, you know, supports human dignity and flourishing? As I think, you know, there are ways we could think about kind of ways to use technology in the trucking context that, that do help to support kind of truckers' dignity and the quality of their work um, and ensure that they're actually just getting paid for the work that they do, which is, you know, in my mind, the, the single thing we could be doing to actually improve their lot is not necessarily surveillance, but is changing the way in which truckers are paid. And so what that what that suggests to me is that 
what is needed is to kind of maybe rethink technology policy as being not really about technology at all sometimes, but about um, giving us a clue into like what problems aren't being solved, right? So if we're using technology to solve a problem, what problem are we using technology to not solve, right? And in the trucking context, right, we're using technology to solve the problem of people breaking, breaking the timekeeping rules, but what we're using technology to not solve is the fact that they're incentivized to overwork, right? Or they're incentivized to sort of help in the exploitation of their own labor. And there are things we could do that don't involve technology at all that would help to solve that problem, right? Things like um, changing kind of the legal or political uh, arrangements that truckers work in, changing the pay structure of trucking, a whole bunch of stuff that I end up talking about in the book. So more broadly, right, if we kind of take that lesson that technology is like part of these political questions, but it is not itself solving some of these social or economic problems, like where does that leave us? So the project I'm working on now, um, I'm working on a textbook, uh, a co-authored textbook with my colleague, John Kleinberg, who's a computer science professor here at Cornell. Um, We teach a class together called Choices and Consequences in Computing. And in that class, we try to get at, you know, these kind of broad questions about, you know, what does it mean? How how is it that political and economic and legal questions kind of get instantiated in technological decision-making you know, what are kind of the choices that are inherent in making engineering decisions that end up having these kind of political consequences? And of course, there's like no easy answers to any of these questions. There's never like an obvious right thing to do. Um, so we're working on a textbook that's based on this this big undergrad class that we teach, which has been really fun, right, to think about um, how these problems play out, not only in the labor context, but also more broadly in like speech and content moderation and privacy and algorithmic decision making, right? Like all kinds of different places where computing has an important role in how social life functions. Well, it sounds like incredibly relevant work. And it sounds like, you know, it's going to be a fantastic uh, book when it's done. I I wish you the best with it. Thank you. Thanks. It's a lot of fun to work on. I'm having a lot of fun with it. (laughs) Well, Karen, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mark.